0: Everyone, everyone, uh, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Shaped by the Sea, the podcast where we dive into the minds of water folks who are uniquely connected to the ocean. I'm your host, Brian Urisits, and today we'll be talking about marine protected areas with a friend and colleague of mine, Johnny Bohorquez. Thanks, Johnny, for um, taking, taking the time to come on the show and um, share some of your you have a huge breadth of knowledge about marine protected areas. And that's, some, that's a topic that um, really we, we can talk a lot more about. It's a hot topic right now uh, with a few efforts being made around the world to protect more spaces of our oceans. Um, so, Johnny, you want to give our viewers just a little background of yourself and a um, little introduction?
1: Yeah, totally. So I'm a uh, PhD candidate, now my fifth year at Stony Brook University in New York, um, where um, I'm also within the, the the School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences and work with the Institute for Ocean Conservation Science. Uh, my work uh, within marine protected areas is really specific on, towards sustainable finance for marine protected areas, making sure that they have been enough, uh, basically, enough money to keep to keep operating, right, and to keep enforcing uh, the laws that they have in place, uh, which ties into my background before I started at Stony Brook, where I actually worked in finance, investing in commercial real estate and renewable
0: energy, and I also majored in economics in college. So m- money, money definitely makes the world go around, and uh, you know, today we're hoping that you can uh, shed some light on how we can better finance, uh, use financing to protect. Spaces of our oceans and Johnny, uh, uh, I know you're also you have a a unique background also in terms of kind of where you're from and where you've lived. So you want to give a uh, our audience a little bit of a background on you know just just what connects you to the sea.
1: Yeah, totally. So uh, I grew up in New York, uh, lived in Manhattan till I was twelve, moved to Brooklyn. Uh, I've been living in Queens for the last three years. Um, New York is it's it's my home. It, Sometimes, you know, it has beautiful beaches, but there's also parts of it where you feel incredibly far from the ocean, right? Um, but it's not the only place that's had influence on my life. My mother's side of the family is from Maine. I spent a lot of time there growing up. I actually went to college there. Uh, my dad is from the Caribbean coast of Columbia, um, where I'm also, I also share citizenship and I've been lucky to Incorporate that uh, directly into my research as well. Working with some of Columbia's uh, marine national parks. Nice,
0: nice. And I mean, that's that's a unique kind of three locations right there to be influenced by growing up, right? Columbia, New York, Maine. You know, completely different marine environments. Um, but are you know they, they've all clearly had some kind of an influence on you. Um, yeah. What 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 made you kind of have you just your whole entire life? Have you been kind of intrigued by the sea, or um, was it kind of after you worked in the field of finance that you decided, for whatever reason, that you wanted to jump into this field and and work to protect our oceans?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess I would say it's been my whole life, only because I can't really remember where it it ever started. Um, I think no doubt going up. Uh, to Maine a lot as a kid, played played a, a big influence that was kind of like my exploration backyard. Um, New York was kind of like, it was a city where sometimes I felt like I was a little bit taken away from it. But because of that, you know, I just dove into books about it, things like that. I, I was actually on Sesame Street when I was five years old, where they filmed me fishing in the Hudson River. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and I, I, I love the ocean. I love natural sciences of all forms. Um, and then when I was in high school, I actually kind of started to deviate a little bit from that. I didn't lose the environmental focus, but I started getting a little bit more interested in economics related to the environment. Uh, I really got interested in climate change and thought about how you know you can how to develop uh, renewable energy infrastructure, things like that. And That was a big focus of mine in, in my undergrad studies, my internships that I did when I was in college, and was really the focus of. That was kind of what. You know, I wasn't interested in finance for finance. I was interested in finance for the sake of renewable energy. Right. How to, yeah. how to, how, to, how do we do that? And how do we how do we build more of it, especially when financial limitations and economics are oftentimes the greatest hurdle towards making advance, towards making advancements in that regard, right?
2: Yeah, um, exactly.
1: But still, you know, as I kind of went down that direction, I ended up working a couple of years doing acquisitions with a company that did do renewable energy work, but was also primarily oriented in, in commercial real estate. And I kind of felt like I needed to, I was stepping away from my main goal and my main passions, one kind of career step at a time. And I felt yeah. like I needed to hit, kind of go back to roots and, and hit the reset button.
0: Yeah, got to um, go back to the roots. And yeah, it- it's. It sounds like you and and this is something that you and I we both were. This is how we uh, Johnny and I actually met. We met in while while we were uh, beginning our our. I was starting my master's degree and you were beginning your PhD at Stony Brook University. And I, I remember that was something that we clicked on was just um, that both of us we came from this background of of having studied economics. Um, it's a little bit different of a path than. You know, most other people in our field might take where they study. You know, they start off, you know, with a passion around marine biology, and they and you know they had this thought going into undergrad that they want to study marine biology, and then you you start getting into the field and you realize that to make changes to protect a lot of the the problems uh, to stop a lot of the problems that are happening out there, overfishing, climate change, pollution, that you know economics are really at the base of a lot of it. And um, so, Johnny, I want I want to. I want to dive into a little bit about your research here. Um, you you, stu- you study probably one of the most interesting topics out there, which is marine protected areas, and, and it's it's one of the toughest questions to answer. How do we protect one of the most massive places on Earth, which is the oceans? Right? Um, we know we know less about the oceans than we do about you know uh, space. Right? Like we we know we've only explored five percent of of our oceans, yet we're trying to protect them now. Uh, we're, we're trying to protect greater expanses of our ocean than we ever have before. So I want to dive into, um, if you could just tell our audience a little bit about some of the, the research you've been doing recently um, around marine protected areas, financing them. Um, yeah, just a little bit of your world right now, basically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the best part, the best place to start out there is kind of what got me into this this area of research in the first place? I didn't think I'd be drawing on my, on on my history working in finance and economics in the way that I have been. I didn't yeah. real even though I had even though I taken environmental economics classes in undergrad and knew that obviously environmental economics, fisheries economics were, were very important and well established fields. This idea of finance and marine protected areas was completely new to me. And when I saw the potential to kind of draw upon my past experience, I, I, I reached for it. Um, yeah. And it's also extremely important. Right. And, and it, and I guess the show, so you know, some of the stats that I think would surprise people are the, as far as looking to protect the ocean, right. Uh, you know, be it Marine national parks, be it fisheries, what have you, all of which are types of Marine protected areas there. We're basically on a global scale per u.n based based targets are looking to protect 10 percent of the ocean which is huge yeah right i like, guess yeah. you said like the ocean makes up about 70 percent of the earth's surface um and that the amount of the ocean under protection has 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 increased several fold just in the last 10 to 15 years
3: yeah. but
1: still today you know you think about maybe we're at optimistically right now seven to eight percent that's probably conservatively probably more like five percent of the ocean is actually protected so we have a ways to go to get to that ten percent target which is actually due at the end of this year but of what you know the little amount that we already have even then only seventy percent seventy percent of the marine protected areas in the world are believed to be what they call paper parks right yeah areas that are just there, there is no day-to-day enforcement or management. If yeah. you went there, you'd never know that it was protected at all. It exists only in legal speak.
0: Yeah, um, so the, there's a lot to break down there, for sure. So so basically, uh, another, another stat, I'm not sure if, if uh, I believe, so the amount of protected, uh, the amount of ocean area that we protected, it, like you said, it's grown exponentially in the past few years, I think, it was only what, like two percent or something like that, uh, as as little as five years ago. Um, uh,
1: do not about a little as five years ago, but like ten years ago, definitely. Yeah,
0: yeah, I remember. I remember studying that was some of the numbers that I was presented uh, in undergrad. I remember, and mm-hmm. and so I mean, it's clear like this is an effort that's being made, but in in that five percent that we're at right now, um, just to clarify for some of the the uh, listeners out there. So not every marine protected area is created equal, right? And that's that's actually something I'd love to, to break down a little bit. Just, you know, what are some of the different types of protected areas in the ocean that we find? Um, right. You know, the, the difference between like no take areas versus, um, you know, uh, seasonally, man- uh, you know, a little bit more um, managed areas. So I, if you could talk talk to that a little bit, I think that would be great.
1: Okay, yeah, so as, as I mentioned previously, MPA, Marine Protected Area, is really an umbrella term to, that basically encompasses any area where there are restrictions on harmful activities that takes to an account a comprehensive, uh, an approach that, that considers the entire ecosystem, not necessarily just a specific species or something like that, right? Um, yep. Now that includes, say for example, marine sanctuaries, marine national parks, right? Imagine basically like Yellowstone or Yosemite yeah. underwater. <laughs> um, yeah. And I guess the easiest the while it's an umbrella term, yeah, there are different areas, there are different types of regulations that are applied to, to each of these. Um, and each country really has its own specific network and its own specific regulations as far as what's allowed in a national park versus what's allowed in a reserve, so on, and so forth. But generally speaking, you have the biggest distinction i would say is to the extent that fishing is allowed or not um yep. fishing being considered by many overfishing considered to be the the biggest threat to the ocean and the number one thing that uh, mpas typically protect against um reserves are typically no take right don't allow fishing at all other areas might allow certain gear types or allow only certain people to fish or yeah and, I believe
0: I believe the term is adaptive adaptive management, correct?
1: Um, kind of. I think it for it depends on. It's it's really what you consider are and ones that allow fishing are usually usually considered mixed use MPAs. Yep. Um, and generally speaking, when you think of the most effective MPAs having no take status, at least in the literature and the research so far, more broadly, those tend to be more effective. Yeah, but you can't think you have to consider local context, right? A no take MPA isn't necessarily what's best for uh, for a specific location. Yeah. And then yep. that's especially true as you consider not only the biodiversity related benefits of MPAs, but also the economic ones that are really important to this issue of, of uh, limited financial resources and getting better, more financial resources for these MPAs and also more political support.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so just generally speaking, I know I've, I've read some of the literature out there around marine protected areas. It seems, and, and this, I I know you've done some research on this, uh, that there's generally, uh, what I think, uh, five factors that affect, that, uh, influence the effectiveness of a protected area. Um, Uh enforcement, the size of the protected area, um, uh, how long it's been around. So, you know, older MPAs generally you see, uh, it, it takes to- a little bit of time for life to come back and show the effectiveness of the protected area. Um, uh, and so I was curious, um, just, yeah, it, it's, it seems as though there, there's a few, a few characteristics of protected areas that have shown success. And I know that enforcement is like one of the biggest ones, because if you can't, if you can't actually protect an area, you know, is it considered protected, right?
1: Right. Um, yeah, of course, enforcement is critical. That's what it's all about. But it's also enforcement relative to the activities that are allowed or not, right? Yeah. Uh, those five characteristics. Yeah, those are part of a really, uh, uh, a really, really important paper in MPA related science. Um, but there's also a little bit more nuanced research right now. Uh, when you think of enforcement, right, enforcement can backfire as well. If you have a very, very almost like top-down heavy enforcement that doesn't take into account communal participation, that's not necessarily a good thing. That's not necessarily an MPA that's well-enforced for a specific local
0: context. Yeah. So you you have to, uh, you definitely have to take into account like the local cultures, the fishing practices, the, uh, correct, you know, yeah. Yeah, the biodiversity. I think,
1: I think in the next year you're gonna see a paper come out. Not by me, but I know I know some people who are working on this, you're gonna see a paper come out about the importance of communal participation or communal uh, and communal management and stakeholder relationships towards MPA nice. effectiveness. Yeah. Um, and and, and, and that ties into the finance question that ties into the enforcement question that ties into the economics question yeah if you, and so, if you if the community is on your side as an mpa manager if the community is on your side that's one less person that you need to spend you know uh boat maintenance and a staff salary and and fuel costs on protecting the mpa against right your enforcement yep. related costs can go down Communi- there are some communal managed mpas where the community actually takes active management. Yeah. in the enforcement itself, and it also can help raise uh, better political support.
0: Yeah, and so how how do you get the community to be f- like financially tied to this, right? Um, and, and how do you get the community to directly see benefits from a protected area rather than, let's say, some you know uh, larger industry or uh, like how ha- how how do you directly connect the the uh, community to protected areas, the, the yeah. benefits from a protected area. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm curious just if you've seen that's that. That's one in
1: your of the work. most, that's, that's, that's crucial. That's one of the most important points. Um, no question hiring from lo- locals into the, into your, the staff that's managing an MPA is critical. Um, also because, you know, you can rely on, on local knowledge, right? Which is, is really, really important. Um, other parts are, I think there's there's definitely an important role for for outreach and education. Yeah. Communities, you know, they might be receiving the benefits, but as you said, yeah, it's not necessarily so visible, and it's important to educate and to communicate how they are when they might not always realize it. Um, and it's also important to make sure that I think that you know you do have some MPAs where the there might be robust tourism markets around it. Right. But the tourism markets might be mostly owned by and operated by perhaps foreigners who,
3: you know, come yeah, expats. The past,
1: Right. And the local communities aren't really necessarily the ones receiving, receiving the benefits in that regard. And in some yeah. cases development, depending on how the tourism co- economy develop, develops, it can sometimes sometimes backfire
0: yeah yeah absolutely because that, that was actually gonna be the, the next question that I asked you was how is tourism play into that because uh, tourism you know the more the more animals the more marine life there is the higher value you're gonna have uh, from you know, you're gonna be able to just uh, give people a better experience you're gonna be able to make money off of that in non extractive ways you know given that the tourism is sustainable right Um right. and so yeah, I, I just find that interesting how, uh, I don't know if you know the answer to that, you know, the question that you pretty much raise is how do, do we ensure that the local communities are, are given those benefits and not, um, let's say an expat you know tourism company that, that saw an opportunity there, right?
1: Yeah, I think it, 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 first of all, it really depends on like, on local level governance say for specific islands, you know, there are islands in the Caribbean that are totally open that are perhaps uh, territories of European countries or the United States, where there are very, very few roadblocks for someone to come from one of those countries and and instead of shop there, there are others. Um, For example, uh, Providencia in Colombia, that operates very autonomously has a population of maybe 5,000 people and have a very very strong uh control over who can actually come to that island and versus those who can't right uh so it's about yep. a little bit making sure that you, when you see economic there are there's a policy level there there's also how does the policy it depends on also the, the type of tourism as well right um if yep. the tourism dollars if the tourism benefits are going to for example uh cruise ships that can be a major problem because while cruise passengers might be getting the benefits of a healthy environment right towards their experience the cruises cruise ships are notoriously one of the 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 harmful harmful elements is that very few dollars are actually going back to the communities that they visit yeah yeah absolutely it's 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 a deep question i don't want to sound like this that's that's everything to it but that's just a couple of of you know related to, to tourism development and how it relates to the economics surrounding MPAs and socio-economic development. Um, that's just a couple of, of observations
0: that I've had. Yeah, absolutely. So what, you know the a lot, a lot of the keys I'm getting is that um, one of the, one of the most important things in designing and uh, just making an MPA successful is understanding the socioeconomics at play in that specific area you're looking at. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It all comes down to, it all comes down to local communities. I mean, it doesn't all come down to, but it, it,
0: it it's, it's very a important. crucial
1: element. It's a crucial element as far as you have to understand who is using it. Yeah. Right. Who stands? To, yeah. Who stands to benefit. Um, and You know there are mpas out there that are so far out in the ocean that this doesn't necessarily really apply to the same degree but for many particularly when there are full-time populations nearby or within the boundaries yeah that is something that you you cannot ignore
0: yeah and so that actually i think that transitions well into kind of the original question that we were getting to, or a, a topic that you started to bring up, which was paper parks. And so right now there's, uh, you mentioned it, the push to protect uh, 10% of our oceans. That's that's the first target we're really aiming for. And that, when you think of the oceans as being such a massive place, 10% is huge. It's a vast amount of space. And we're only halfway there. So if we're going to reach that goal, um, you know, and and, do it right it it sounds like uh my question would be are we on the path to doing it right um and what are some of those roadblocks l- like paper parks um if you could talk on that a little bit that you know might inflate that number and you know make us technically reach that 10% but are we really at 10% well
1: some of us would say that maybe we already have technically reached 10% right it depends on what you consider commitments versus mpas that are already operating yeah um, there's also at least for the IET targets which are related to but are not the same as, as the the un sustainable development goals there's recently they allowed inclusion of what they call other ecosystem other other effective conservation me- measures um and those have a lot a lot of areas that wouldn't actually be considered mpas be allowed to be tied to that to to uh to those percentages um, okay I think we are getting better we i think things are getting better um that's good to hear (laughs) as far as yeah previously so the whole issue of where finance comes into play here is that yeah if estimate if we estimate that somewhere around 70 percent of mpas around the world not necessarily mpa area but specific mpas are paper parks the number one reason for that tends to be yeah at lack of Active enforcement, particularly related to staff uh, capacity, and which is also, of course, tied to limited financial resources. Right, financing is a huge part of reducing the amount of paper parks
0: that we have. Yeah. Um, so, I was just going to say, paper parks, just for context, is a marine protected area that is designated. You know, on paper, it is a it's it's a protected area designated. Um, but it doesn't actually accomplish the goals of protecting the area because of uh, weaknesses in design, um, you know, problems with financing it, uh, lack of enforcement, all of that. So I, I just wanted to throw that in there just in case people uh, didn't know what paper parks were.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it might as well be be, be non-existent. So exactly. Uh, can, you, can you remind me of your question again as far as as far as like, are we are we doing this right? Could you just rephrase that for me one more time?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so right now, you know, we're we're getting towards the ten percent. That's our goal. Um, what does the future look like? Uh, are we going to be able to reach that ten percent um, without making them without making these paper parks? You know, making real legitimate, um, you know, community uh, protected areas that that help the community, that really um, empower local communities to to benefit from it, um, and that la- that last for a long time, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we definitely can reach 10% and I think we definitely will. I'm not sure if that's going to happen in, in time for 2020, uh, but it will happen. But yeah, the question is at, at what level of quality are these MPAs going to be in really what are, and yeah, how impactful are they going to be down down uh, the, the long term? I think there definitely has been a greater appreciation for these socioeconomic aspects with regard to... MPA design. I think previously, I know before I mentioned real top down heavy handed control, uh, a lot of times, particularly in developing countries, protected areas have, in many cases, been viewed as kind of a a colonialist approach, right, towards management, you know, having, having this idea of having, um, you know, wealthier countries coming, usually white, uh, telling, these locals who have been here for generations, some cases centuries or thousands of years, what they can and can't do yeah. hasn't always been particularly well received. So I think this, the greater kind of conscientious efforts to consider the socioeconomic aspect is not only good as far as finding ways in which we can lever, lever better financing, but of course I think it's going to lead to to a greater understanding among communities and people everywhere on the potential benefits of NPAs hopefully lead yeah to the, the stronger more robust mpas
0: yeah absolutely and and just in terms of how to sustainably finance marine protected areas moving forward what so where where do these protected areas get their funding from generally and and where like what are you what are you seeing is like the way forward in terms of how we can sustainably finance these
1: right uh so there's kind of two two parts to this so uh, the where where overwhelmingly the funding for mpas has come from government okay. um be it mostly domestic government spending but in many cases particularly for developing countries it's a lot comes from from international aid uh so like bilateral or multilateral support yep. um a lot comes from philanthropy actually ocean related philanthropy has been increasing a lot and is now actually potentially beginning to eclipse uh, international governmental support. Um, Yeah, and you know, that goes, you know, these philanthropic foundations fund NGOs, NGOs are usually very active on the ground, particularly in developing countries. Um, Then there's the question of what particular so if funding is limited here the the issue is that government funding it can be unreliable not only it has it not been enough so far but it has proven sometimes to be unreliable you might get a change in a government regime that no longer prioritizes mpas and an annual budget can be cut like that Uh, philanthropic support can also be fickle so there's this idea of how can mpas become more self-sufficient and a lot of that includes how can we lever revenue from industries that either harm or benefit from the services that, that MPAs provide. The most frequent one there has been the one that we've already talked a good amount about is tourism. Yep. Um, the first financially self-sufficient MPA in the entire Caribbean, the Bonaire National Marine Park, is has been for probably about 25 years now entirely supported by fees. For people who want to enter to use the park, basically it's basically it's almost like having like a ski pass. Yeah, exactly. that to, di- to go diving or go kayaking or snorkeling. Exactly. Um, and that's been big. As far as where it's heading, I think realistically, I think government support will remain the predominant source of funds for all MPA for for all conservation really. Yeah. Uh, doesn't mean on local, you know, we can't expand the use of these alternative mechanisms. You know, carbon offsets are being looked at now. Um, uh, different types of earmarked taxes, things like that. Uh, different fees yeah. and penalties. But, but it will, you know, it will remain mostly government. So the question here is, you know, it's not just about raising funds from these other sources which again, aren't foolproof themselves. Tourism right now, the big concerns related to COVID-19 and tourism and, and the impact on conservation. Oh yeah, that's, that's going to be of it is also Yeah. How can, how can we also, you have to work both angles, right? We can't just, we can't replace government funding that we can never be replaced. What we need to do is increase as much as we can from other sources, but also encourage governments to invest in MPAs and other important forms of marine conservation more.
0: Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a really good point. Yeah.
1: So, And a big part of that is showing the, 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 the importance, the socioeconomic importance.
2: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for Dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your Dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable Dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com.
0: I mean, does that does that just link uh, to, you know, out, outreach to your representatives basically at home and, um, you know, all this uh, obviously, you know the press around our the issues facing our oceans has been, you know, pushed into the mainstream for a few different reasons. Uh, uh, you know, in recent history, um, do you think that that you know that's going to benefit uh, this this funding that we see from governments put being put into protecting our marine areas?
1: I think it's going to come from two areas. One, environmental issues have become much more mainstream, which has been over the last even I would say two to three
0: years yeah so like really, plastic really pollution and, and right um and climate change i mean plastic pollution and climate change i would say are the two most um you know that have been thrust into the spotlight especially yeah. just seeing storms that we we're getting especially here on the east coast and the caribbean um yeah. and obviously just you know the plastic is just it's become mainstream it's it's a uh, you know it's mentioned in songs it's mentioned in on tv commercials everything you know right um,
1: right and as far as in, in dollar terms though and particularly dollars as it relates to mpa specifically definitely definitely climate change
0: yeah yeah that's um, i mean that's a really good point yeah
1: and and what we're also seeing is how mpas and again when i talk about mpas i don't want to make it sound like they're they're the only solution but they're the ones i happen to focus on so they're the ones yeah, so they're, they're, yeah. they're the focus of 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 this conversation here but they're being, we're seeing more and more how they are highly relevant to climate change
0: adaptation and mitigation. How how so, how so would you say? I mean,
1: there's a several ways, right? Um, On the adaptation side, the ecosystems that they often protect like mangroves and coral reefs are really, really important to uh minimizing impacts from hurricanes right yep
3: exactly um,
1: there's an entire system in Quintana Roo in mexico where they have an insurance program where hotels are finally money into an insurance program that is meant to protect the reef and restore it in the event of a hurricane right because yeah. while the coral reef does protect the shoreline it does suffer some damage still um and other areas mangroves as well same thing um sequestration by some of these ecosystems, um, but we're also seeing how how uh, if you start with a healthier ecosystem, yep. it's in the it's better suited to. It's more it's going to be it, it's it will be more resilient to any impacts you throw at it, right? You don't want to start yeah. if you if you have an ecosystem that's already sick, it's more likely that climate change is going to be the blow to, to to wipe it out. Exactly. Um, but in general, I think the that doesn't relate just to MPAs, but the ocean in general, the relationship of the ocean to climate change is something that's become uh, a much more central part of the conversation
0: in yeah. the environment in the last few years. Yeah, and and even um, so, obviously go- government funding uh, is being so. You're, what you're what you're basically getting at here is that climate change, just the talk and the focus around climate change, and, and the usefulness of marine protected areas in mitigating the effects of climate change uh, and and adapting to it right um right. are the, those benefits we're going to financial we're going financi- to uh, put more money into protected areas because of the benefits that they have yeah in it's, that showing,
1: it's showing governments why these are important because again as yeah. i said you, we're never gonna we can't look at of fi- uh, financing mpas as far as looking at ways to replace government
3: finance. yeah
1: we have to we have to try to supplement it as best as we can. But part of it is also going to be increasing the amount of dollars that governments invest into MPAs each year. Yeah, and that's, that's all it, about I, showing, showing the benefits and showing how they play into the part of these, these, these larger global initiatives.
0: Yeah. And, and are there, so are there any other elements that you would say are really like crucial and, and that you're studying right now related to uh, the, the sustainable financing of MPAs?
1: Um, so what I'm doing right now, I guess my thesis topic really in a nutshell is to um, develop kind of a, a replicable tool that can help MPA managers assess their finance, the financial sustainability of an MPA. Yeah. Um, certain options that, that they can take that can improve it, that can improve their financial well-being. Um, and what I'm doing is the, the subject of my, one of the one of the talking points of, of my first chapter that I published a little over a, a year ago now, yeah, was about how there really is very, very little information to draw on yeah. um, as far as publicly available uh, data. And what I'm doing, this is really the central part of my thesis is actually going out to specific MPAs and digging up the information from a few key case studies. Yeah. Um, and trying to, you know, learn what I can and, 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 and scale that up.
0: Yep. Yep. And that, I think you, you touch on a really good point here is that we, when it comes to uh, protecting land areas versus protecting ocean areas, we know a lot more about uh, protecting areas of land than we do ocean, right. And more land, uh, you know, percentage wise is protected compared to our oceans. Um, right. And I, I, I saw that you—that was one. Is that the paper that you're mentioning right now? Um,
1: yeah, it was the it was, it was that was in the same the same paper. The idea um, was that yeah, we were you know we're answering we're looking to answer this question, but along the way, the experience is that there really is very very little information
0: publicly available
1: yeah. information out there for which to advance this field.
0: Yeah, and so you're ba- you're basically sure. developing this base of knowledge for managers and and you know anyone anyone working to design marine protected areas to kind of work off of, essentially?
1: Yeah, you got to go out there and and see these places in action and study, you know, I'm looking to study a handful of these at a very, very deep level that is hopefully representative or speaks to a lot of the experiences of MPA managers at different types of MPAs all around the world. Yeah. Um, and... and so, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, so even though... You know, we mentioned that every protected area is going to be different because of the socioeconomics involved. Um, just every everywhere is different when it comes to our oceans. Are there any, like, universal truths um, when it comes to designing these protected areas? Or is, is there any, like, consistencies across the areas that you've been to um, that you the can The areas like, share that I you? have
1: been to, mo- all but one of them have at least some tourism component. Um that's not necessarily, at least so far, I'm still, there's still others I'm exploring and looking to dive into. Um, yeah. But other than that, there are no, there are no consistencies. And <laughs> <laughs> there are, I think, I think the idea is that I've, I look at enough of them that most of the different potential contextual differences. Yeah. There, that MPA and an MPA, and hopefully that most MPAs in the world can look at the spread of all of these and at least find at least one that's somewhat similar
0: yeah. to their own experience. It, it won't be the same, but as if it's close enough, you can learn from what's happening there, basically.
1: Yeah, and also see a diversity of the different types of uh, financial mechanisms that are in place, the different types of management structures, the different scenarios, different environmental characteristics.
0: Yeah, um, no, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, and also, so just touching back on that that same study that uh, we were discussing, where you basically compare marine protected areas versus terrestrial protected areas, um, in that in that study that you did, I was reading you go through the uh, the cost structure basically of implementing uh, protected area on land versus in the sea and how they're kind of different. Um, I thought you made some really you made some really interesting points there, just um, you know about like just what costs more uh the implementation or you know making these protected areas last for a long time um i thought it would be interesting if you could talk on a couple of your findings that you you had from that study
1: yeah totally so uh the main difference is there's two things there's property rights but there's also this the the real obvious ones are, are logistical differences so When you look at the cost of an MPA over time versus a terrestrial protected area, at least according to to budgets and according to various cost models, there's a much greater emphasis. Long-term operational costs are important for both, but there's a much, much greater emphasis on the long-term operating costs for marine protected areas. Basically, marine protected areas compared to terrestrial ones are cheap to implement, cheap to start, but really expensive to maintain over the long term, which is kind of a little bit of a trap because as we're talking about paper parks, right? Governments can easily designate these without, but then but then all of a sudden be, have this huge bill in front of them in order to maintain them and then they fall into paper parks. Yeah. Um, and I think the first reason is no doubt logistical differences. Anyone who has ever owned or operated a boat can probably relate to that it is really expensive <laughs> to do things yeah. on the ocean
0: <laughs> yeah that's what um, most people say is the the worst or what is it the best and worst day of or their life is when they you know become a boat owner
1: right <laughs> <laughs> it's really expensive um as an example roughly i think the estimate is usually somewhere in around like 85 percent of mpas of terrestrial protected areas like 85 percent of an annual budget should roughly go to staff salaries for a, a marine protected area it becomes it's like sixty to sixty-five percent, right? And that's for a yeah. marine protected area that's probably has some land area within it or near it, where uh, that's so it's fairly easily accessible. Yeah. Um, and that's largely because of yeah, the, the the cost of fuel, the the maintenance. And PAs are really yep. expensive. And I've heard anecdotally that you have, in some cases, you have people who have worked with terrestrial protected areas, and then when they transition to working with a marine protected area, they often underestimate how much they really need to budget for, for long-term operations. Uh, the other element is this issue of property rights, which is why this is really more the reason why MPAs are relatively cheap to set up, but, yep. and why terrestrial ones are more expensive. Um, there are very few property rights in the ocean. It's not like you have to buy land. Right. Yeah. Um, in Colombia, there's a, there's an article in New York, in the New York times about this valley that has this kind of this, you know, this, understood in the last five years or so to really be this un relatively unknown stronghold of columbia's national tree the wax palm and there's this huge opportunity to save it but to do that they need to buy up the land from the local from the from uh the local landowners so yeah. there's a big upfront bill yep marine protected areas you don't really have that um because private yep. property rights are are the exception, rather than the norm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the ocean. The ocean belongs to everyone. Or, or you know, if it's within a uh, country's EEZ, then I assume it's it's under the jurisdiction of the federal government, right?
1: Um. Yeah. Most of the time, I mean, you might have areas that are leased. I mean, there there, there are private property rights to some degree. Like there are seabed rights, for example, in some places. Um, oyster. Like for example shellfish farmers in the long island sound right you have to lease out a certain area um so it's not like property rights aren't existent but they're exceedingly rare and so yeah all the government all the governments have to do is say okay we're not going to protect this area and yeah there's some research that has to go behind it some legal work so it's not it's not free but it's not it's not nearly the same. And and my hunch is that a lot of people are kind of just a lot of, uh, a lot of organizations and particularly governmental organizations are sometimes caught off guard by how much they really need to spend
0: to really have these MPAs in earnest. Yeah, no, I mean, it, exactly. It, it, they really, it's, it's easy to underestimate how, you know, how much you have to put into it. And I think that that ties into uh, just in terms of what the future is looking like. Right. Right. Um, I think it, it. How would you say we can cut those long-term costs? Because I think there's a few, there's a few things that we touched on, and one we didn't. Um, obviously, if you involve the community in uh, in the benefits of a protected area, uh, you're cutting your the costs that you need in enforcing it, right? Like you're not, right. you don't have to set, you don't have to send people all over the place if you already have a community, a community that's working together to, to protect and manage this area. Um, the other thing too, uh, I'm not sure if you've worked at all on this or if you studied it, but um, how we are using satellite technologies and, and tracking technologies, especially out more in the high seas, to uh, aid in the enforcement end of, mm-hmm. end of everything. Basically, so you know, you don't necessarily have to have a fleet of ships out there, you know, looking for people who are illegally fishing. You can kind of use satellite technology to understand, hey, if this boat. Has slowed down to X speed. Uh, that means it's fishing, basically. You know. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, there are. Yeah. There are definitely technologies that can help reduce that, especially in, in the in the satellite and the satellite technology is definitely as, as we expand the amount of area under protection. A lot of that is going to be in in uh, in um, more remote waters, right? Uh, and the sa- It hasn't been one of the areas I'm I'm researching in particular has has used. Satellite technology.
3: Yeah,
1: Um, it hasn't been as effective as they hoped because fishermen they 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 know ways to to cut around it, right? Um, Yeah, that doesn't mean it's it's not worth it. I think it should still be continue to be developed, right? I think it really could be helpful down the road. And like any new technology, it 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 takes time to really begin to use it effectively. And there's always with any sort of illegal activity it's always going to be to some extent there's always going to be a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole right they're going to adapt and you're going to have to adapt um yeah but it, it yeah it could help <laughs> a lot drones are also being looked into yep um and there are also other you know scientific monitoring as an example is something that that is is good for mpas to have right they need to establish a baseline they need to see if the measures are working um and that's expensive too, and and there are some new scientific methods. Uh, one example being eDNA, environmental DNA, that have a lot of potential to reduce scientific
0: monitoring costs. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've heard I've heard a lot about that technology. I know it's it's like the hot topic in um, you know in, in a lot of the marine conservation work that's out there, especially around you know, l- larger. Uh, I've seen it used a lot with shark species, um, yeah. just understanding the, the where basically where uh what areas certain species are using and president um and that actually that makes me think of another question i got for you Uh, i know i remember reading a lot about um uh, basically protected area networks um so the idea of instead of creating like a really large space of protected area that's uh, tougher to enforce um Mm -hmm. the idea of creating smaller more uh more more specific protected areas uh, based off of, you know, sound science to protect, let's say, corridors where animals are known to migrate through or, um, you know, very like specific hotspots of biodiversity. uh, And, and, you know, the idea, the idea being that instead of protecting a large area, um, minimize the costs by protecting uh, using science to protect very specific areas.
1: Yeah. There is kind of a question of, do we need large expansive areas versus, Focused networks um, yeah I think in certain contexts that can definitely work it is of course under the it's always at the risk of the fact that those those highly migratory species can still be can still be caught when they're when they're moving in between grounds yeah um, but again there, there's no M- MPAs aren't aren't they're not panacea they they're, you, they're not a cure-all um and at the same time as get yeah there's no one there's no one yeah. format that's that's the right format either yeah um, but yeah that is that that is potentially a way to to approach it
0: yep yeah. and and I'm just curious do you think do you think uh from the financing perspective that a network of like focused MPAs would would be cheaper than one large MPA uh, I know it's <laughs> It's a tough, it's a broad question, you know, but um, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yes,
1: and yes and no, right? Because first of all, you can have a large MPA with certain specific zones of focus within it. Yeah. Right, As you don't have to necessarily enforce the entire MPA equally. Um, and sometimes having kind of a buffer around an area can kind of make sure that, potential illegal uh, um, illegal fishing vessels and things like that don't get too close to the areas that you really care about, right? Um, yeah. But, at the same time, yeah, you would think overall though, MP larger, yeah, the larger MPA is going to cost more, but at the same time, on a per area basis, they cost a little bit less. So the difference yeah. might not be as great as it might seem on the surface. Yeah. But again, you have to, you have to, you have to uh, analyze on a local level.
0: Yeah. I I think, I think that's the, that's, that's the overall message that I think people are going to take from, from listening to this is that, you know, when it comes to designing these protected areas, you're, you're basically starting from scratch every new place that you're looking basically. Um, Yeah.
1: And, and there are certain things that we, we see, we try to our point to implement and all, cases, right? Like, for example, uh, communal participation, stakeholder, rela- you know, fostering good stakeholder relations. Yeah. But again, not all MPAs have the same, the same stakeholders, right? Depends on the type yeah. of stakeholder, it depends on the type of communities that are that are there nearby, depends on the, the cultural history of a given place as well.
0: Yeah, no, I, I know there's there's a lot to factor in. Um, and no, I, I think, I mean, I've definitely like learned, I've learned a lot more about this just from this one conversation so far. Um, I, got, I just want to pick your brain. Uh, so you've, you've definitely, you work in a really cool place right now. I mean, you're, you're, work, you're going to visit all of these different protected areas around the world, right? Um, what, you want to share some, some of your you know, favorite stories from what you've seen out there and kind of like the work that you've done in the field?
1: Uh, sure. So let me think. So I'm looking at several, particularly in the Latin American Caribbean region. Yep. One of the examples is uh, One of the ones I'm looking at is a, is an island called Gorgona and the MPA around it off the the southwest Pacific coast of Colombia and I went to the island in Like December, right? Um, yeah, and I was there for a few days and it's it's really rainy It's remote. It's hot. It's sweaty. I've been traveling for about four weeks at this point point. <laughs> yeah. and and, you know, after four weeks of travel, like, yeah, you can shower every day, but there's also a certain amount of, like, I guess you could say in <laughs> uh, sun exposure and yeah. exhaustion that, that, that you can't just shower off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's stuck on you. I had to go, and after this, I had to go to a workshop in Rome oh, directly wow. from this island, 25 miles off the coast in one of the most rural and really most beautiful marine areas in the world. Yeah. um in that entire pacific coast of columbia is extreme, has incredibly high biodiversity really beautiful extensive intact mangrove ecosystems um a lot of large fish a lot of sharks a lot of, a lot of whales certain times of the year yeah um, and it gives you an appreciation for you know 48 hours later i was having to to basically take everything i learned in the last four weeks condense it into a presentation put on a suit and tie <laughs> <laughs> and 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 present to some 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 uh, UN officials um, and um, some politicians, dictators, and the the process of you know you walk in you 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 undergo a complete transformation yeah. from working in the field to being in you know when we talk about like the UN Ocean Meeting, um, COP15 later this year, you know when you when you walk into these rooms and, and present and it's just it was kind of an experience. First of all, the travel <laughs> itself was exhausting, right? I had to take
3: yeah,
1: I had to take a, a to get a boat back to the mainland, get like three planes to get out of the country, layover. Uh, I got Treat. stopped at the border. I got stopped at the border last minute going to Italy. Oh wow! That <laughs> was the wow. guy. I, I looked so disheveled and carrying a yeah. large backpack with like wet clothes and stuff. The guy did not. The guy did not believe I was yeah. there for a for a UN meeting. <laughs> and it, and it shows you the many different environments that a lot of people who work in conservation operate in and kind of the many hats
0: that we wear. Um, Yeah. You go from your, your wetsuit to your real suit, right? Real, real like overnight, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah. So that in itself was just kind of, a was just uh, an interesting life and and career experience that gives you a different kind of appreciation for, you know, you don't, when that person is presenting looking all polished in inside of a big meeting room, like you don't know that person could have been on the other side of the world two yeah. days ago, and yeah. and it's pretty cool to think about.
0: Yeah, and do, I mean, would would you say that that like that made your presentation just so much better, better and more impactful to the audience? Just the fact that you're you're fresh off of the boat, basically. It
1: certainly made it hard for me to keep it to keep within my time limit. <laughs> I had a lot to say, um, but it it was uh. It, it, maybe it did. I yeah. think I pre, the people who, the ones who who work, you know, not everyone who is in that room was necessarily the most, you know, this wasn't necessarily their their top interest, but there were many who 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 do who are marine conservationists, and those in that room certainly expressed an appreciation for getting this kind of for this type of ground level yeah. research and and drawing from real
0: experiences exactly you you it, it it's just it's more impactful yeah. it's more it's more passionate when you uh have been you know you're you're thrown into the fire with everything else you know you're not mm-hmm. looking at it from a distance you know mm-hmm. right. um it it your, your words definitely weigh more
3: mm-hmm.
0: um no, that that sounds that sounds like a wild wild trip though um and, and you know it, it i think it's really cool that you I also just I I, def I think it's incredible that you are focusing your research, uh in uh, you know a lot of it it sounds like you've you have you are passionate about Columbia and and you know it sounds like it is is that because of your family ties and um just like your your history kind of that you're drawn there or is it just you know it, your work brought you there kind of, um
1: both uh it, it was always you know for I was born in in 1991, um between when I was born and when I was not 18 years old, I'd only been to Columbia once, um, yeah. for security reasons. And, you know, Columbia went through a very, a very difficult period, particularly from, from the eighties through the mid two thousands. Um, yeah. and it was always, but my, you know, while Maine was kind of like my exploration backyard, Colum- New York was where you know, I dive into books and go to the aquarium and stuff like that. Columbia was always this kind of magical place that I was, that my, my image of it was basically through, through my dad's bedtime stories, more yeah. than one of which were, were about, uh, fishing on the ocean in the 1950s when, you know, it wasn't hard. It wasn't uncommon to get a 13, 14 foot hammerhead shark. Yeah. Um, one of which I actually had the job that my grandfather caught from a canoe. Uh, wow. <laughs> a, <hand> line, <laughs> uh, a relic. Asked, yeah. From a, uh, an old period it was, you know it was brought into the country a long, long, long time ago. I think it's not I don't think it's, not, it's, it's I don't think that one is necessarily a hammerhead shark looking at the the teeth, but he caught many. Um, yeah. And of course, it's those tons of activities that that <laughs> that led to the condition <laughs> of lavarosas today.
3: Yeah. but it,
1: it was always this kind of magical realm that I had always hoped that one day I'd be able to explore more.
3: Nice. Um, and-
1: secondly, work wise it is an incredibly biodiverse country. Um yep. it helps that, you know, if I'm gonna travel for four weeks, I can help keep my expenses low because I can stay with family there.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, so that's another attraction to it. Um I'm also a Colombian citizen myself. Uh nice. so it's you know, it's it's a combination of of of, of really a lot of interest and curiosity. Yeah. And also just, you know, logistically it it makes sense
0: for me. It fit. Yeah, the yeah. shoe fit. Right. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Um and so Johnny, I just wanna I wanna end. Our, uh, our episode here, just on, uh, on your opinion here. Uh, I wanna know what gives you hope about our ability to protect the ocean going into the future and reach the targets that we have, um, you know, by 2030, 2050. Um, you know, what, what gives you hope uh, and what do you see out there that gives you hope?
1: That's a good question. That's a, that's a tough question yeah it's a little Uh, packed for you so i I apologize no worries um i guess what gives me hope is seeing it's seeing these considerations for the environment really uh, in particularly the last couple of years really come into the mainstream where it's it's no longer just a phase i think i think it's here to stay yeah And it's also inspiring sometimes, you know, you, you do, yeah, we've, we've, we've harmed nature in really devastating and, and, and also in, in a lot of unrecoverable ways, but nature is also surprising and sometimes surprisingly resilient. Yeah. Um, I saw people fishing in the Gowanus canal in Brooklyn, like (laughs) a, a couple of weeks ago for the first time. And I thought, are you kidding me? (laughs) yeah <laughs> there are would... things living in here um yeah.
0: that aren't radioactive
3: <laughs>
1: that's not not to say that you know if they also tend to go on us it would be fine it would it, that would be that that yeah. would be a, a different kind of nightmare <laughs> um <laughs> but it, it is surprising sometimes and 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 we hope that it can adapt to yeah. some things but we have to you know give it the best chance that we can
0: yeah absolutely i think that's that's a perfect point there you know if if we protect it the life will come back pretty much mm-hmm. and i think i think that's a huge message to take home um yeah. and and you know that's that's why we do the work that we do right that's why you're studying how to make these protected areas better um, yeah
1: and, and you look at new york too right and, and new york is sent up a case stat, sample on this right new york is the city the, the hudson hudson uh hudson river new york harbor and waters around it were in terrible condition in the 70s and the 80s, and even five or ten years ago, you know, Gotham Whale would go out and see a whale once every handful of trips, and now they go and they see one most trips. You had a whale, and not a thick one, mind you, swim up the Hudson all the way up to the, the GW Bridge just like four years ago, five, I think. Yeah.
3: Um, that so
0: would have been unfathomable back in the day. Right. right.
1: <laughs> if it was, there was something wrong with it. But yeah. this one wasn't, this one was just chasing the school of Manhattan. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I, there, there, there are cases and some of them are quite close to home. So,
0: yeah. so you know, what, what is possible? Yeah, it, it's incredible. It's, it, it's incredible how life is resilient and can come back. And Johnny, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, you know, chat with, chat with me about marine protected areas. And um, hopefully, you know, our audience out there uh, definitely learned something new. I know I learned something new and I've been, you know, studying these topics with uh, you for you know a while now. And you know, I think I think this is very valuable information. And um, you know, it, it's it's always incredible to learn more about how we're protecting our oceans out there today. So thank you, Johnny, for taking the time.
1: Yeah, of course, Brian, my pleasure, man.